All right, everybody, we are in Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. <clears throat> Lord willing, we will finish this chapter uh, this evening, depending on how it goes. We may go a little bit into chapter 9, but I, I would say just looking at what I had planned for um, the way the class would progress up until the summer quarter when I won't be teaching on Wednesday nights in the summer, uh, I had expected us to finish through chapter 12 and then take the summer off, but I expect us to go beyond chapter 12. I think we'll get past that, uh, which would be fine. I don't think we'll get to the next big kind of mile marker, which is like chapter 22. We're not going to get that far, um, but that's okay. We'll um, we'll just get a refresher and then jump right back into it when we come back in the fall, if you are back here in the fall. But so we're on, we're on a good pace. I say all that because we've been in this class for a while now and we're only in chapter eight and there's 66 chapters. So, you know, you eat an elephant one bite at a time, just a little bit at a time. So we're in chapter 8 right now. Obviously, we just finished chapter 7 last week. Chapter 7 is one of the more famous ones, and really it's only famous because of chapter 7, verse 14, the famous uh, virgin birth prophecy uh, uh, statement. But still, because of that, it is a very famous text. Chapter 9, the one that's coming after this one, is also famous. It has a very famous messianic uh, prophecy verse, Isaiah 9, 6. Sandwiched in between that is what is basically a real buzzkill. It's a real downer kind of a chapter. Chapter 7 is very optimistic. I mean, there's a lot of, you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die, but those are always tempered with, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't. There's a lot of positivity in chapter 7, a lot of hope and optimism to find, if you're looking for in chapter 7, as there is in chapter 9 as well. Chapter 8 is a lot of, here's the problem with you people, uh, as Isaiah lays it out. So that's, that's where we're going to be in uh, this, this, uh, this evening. Let's look at the beginning of the chapter and see how it starts. Chapter 8, verse 1. <clears throat> Moreover, the Lord said unto me, that's Isaiah writing in the first person. Moreover, the Lord said unto me, Take thee a great roll, or scroll, your Bible might say, and write in it with a man's pen concerning... All right. Does anybody want to stand and read the last word of the verse? Uh, it's. I tell you, the best way to do these things is to break them down. All right, it's maher, shalal, halal, like halal. If you know, if you read the halal psalms, halal, um, cash pass. And I probably spelled the last part wrong, so that's why we scribble. So it's maher shalal cash pass. All right, is that what everybody's Bible says? Yeah. Hash. You have a hash? All right, well, I don't care. It's K-H. But it, it's pronounced with a hard K sound. All right, so it shouldn't say hash. It should say cut. Mahar Shal Kashpas, which is, it, like with Isaiah's other son, this is one of Isaiah's sons that's soon to be, um, his other son, Shir Jashub, his name means something. Now, just about everybody's name means something. I imagine there's some modern names today that don't mean anything except something nonsensical. But especially back in the day, names had specific meanings. And through uh, prophets, God regularly used the naming of things and especially the naming of people to be almost like living monuments and living prophecies of things to come. Um, Sheer Jashub, his name meant the remnant shall return. So he was this, this son of Isaiah, this living embodiment of the promise that yes, you're going into <laughs> captivity, that implies the idea of returning means you're going away, but 
you're coming back home. So it has an optimistic, hopeful idea behind it. The remnant will return. Yes, you're going into captivity, but those faithful ones will come back from captivity. Maharshala Hashbaz or Kashbaz uh, doesn't mean that. It means the enemy moves quickly and riches are fleeting. So there's no way to positively interpret that. It means you, you, have, you can store up for yourself all these treasures and you can build up for yourself all kinds of a, of a, of a war chest and all kinds of a, um, a stockpile, whether that is of a financial kind, of an artillery kind, anything you think you can stockpile to withstand an invading army. And under normal circumstances, maybe you could stockpile enough, but your riches are fleeting and your enemy is moving swiftly. You will not be able to store up enough defenses to prepare you for what is coming. Because what is coming is coming swiftly and is coming ferociously. And there's nothing you've got that's going to be left. All that you have um, hoarded and held upon is going to be stripped away from you. That's what this kid's name means, the poor thing. And a matter of fact, he's going to be made fun of in first grade just for the name. The meaning of it is a opposite of Sheer Jashub. It's a living reminder that you're going into captivity. Sheer Jashub, a reminder you're coming out. But this one, you're going in. It's going to be swift. It's going to be painful. Verse 2. And I took unto me faithful witnesses to record, Uriah the prophet and Zechariah the son of Jeberkiah. Faithful witnesses, I took um, people who would bear witness to, if you remember in verse 1, he told him, write this down. Okay, So I took witnesses to, to bear witness to the writing of what God told me to write. And who did he take? Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberkiah. Now you hear that word Zechariah, maybe your mind goes to the book of Zechariah, but it is not that guy. That's 200 years later. That's Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. This is Zechariah, the son of Jeberechiah. Big difference. And obviously it is. They're two different people, but very similar daddy names. But no, two completely different people. This is the Zechariah who is mentioned in 2 Kings 18, which is contemporary around this time. In that case, he's the father-in-law of King Ahaz, who we read about earlier in chapter 7. So if he is the father-in-law of the king and he is a witness to the writing of what is essentially a word, word, of prophecy that gives some royal credibility to it, some royal weight to bearing witness to the writing of this prophecy. Now, it's not just a writing of prophecy. It's also a person who's going to occupy this name. Thus, verse 3, Isaiah writing, I went in unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord to me, call his name, Maharshal Al-Kashbaz. All right. Uh, so, verse 1, basically... If, you, if you're reading it and you're trying to wrap your head around it, kind of, it, it can kind of uh, be a little fuzzy. Because it sounds like this has already happened, he's already got a son, and he's supposed to write something about him, and then later he's going to conceive the son. But what, what verse 1 really is, is kind of like a heading. It's kind of like an introduction. Verses 2, 3, and 4 is the summary of everything that is kind of put there in verse 1. All right, Where this boy came from is verse 3. What God says to do with his name and what to name him and why name him that is introduced to you in verse 1. And that is kind of repeated in verse 3 where God says, call his name, a word which means riches are fleeting and your enemy is swift. Um, just because someone may wonder, if again, let me, I'll, I'll get your, your translation see if it's the same as mine. In verse 3, mine says Isaiah's wife was described as a prophetess. Did your Bible say that? It was that. All right. So there's two there's two different schools of thought. There's no elaboration. So it's just one or the other. You can pick whichever one you want. Either she's a prophetess because she's a prophet who's a female. Thus the ESS attached to it. Nothing unbiblical about that. Philip's daughters were prophetesses. Or 
there is in in uh, Eastern writing and Eastern culture, the wife of someone was called the that something s. So the wife of a prophet was called a prophetess, and she was only a prophetess because she was the wife of the prophet. Uh, and I would argue that makes sense more in the context because Isaiah doesn't really do anything um, with his wife. He doesn't, you know, she doesn't come along. She doesn't tag along in his adventure. She doesn't brought up again later. She's strictly there, mentioned here in verse three, and she's only introduced as well. This is the mother of this boy that we're talking about. So who is she? She's the wife of Isaiah. Thus, she's the prophetess because she's the wife of the prophet. She's she's the Mrs. Prophet. It's like we call Job's wife Mrs. Job. Well, that's probably not her name, but that's just what we think of. So, just in case someone wondered, is Isaiah's wife a prophet or not? I don't know. But the word could simply just mean the wife of a prophet. But it wouldn't matter if she was. As I'm saying, Philip's, Philip had daughters who were prophets. Anywho. <clears throat> Verse 4. For before the child, that's this guy, shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria, shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. This is the second time in as many chapters as Isaiah has used a child's age, first with his first child, Shear Jashub, and now with Mahar Shalar Kashbez, both times to provide a timeline for when a prophecy is going to be fulfilled. If you remember chapter 7, he was saying before the child is old enough to know the difference between good and evil, before he's old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, then blah, 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 bad things will happen. Well, here with this child, the prophecy is kind of framed around his age as before he's even old enough to cry, before he's old enough to um, cry my mother, cry my father, before he's old enough to speak his first words or so, then the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away. Again, what's the meaning of the name? Your riches are fleeting. Your spoil is fleeting. That, that's the meaning of the word. So when will this word come to fruition before he's even, let's say, two years old? Why two years old? Because this takes place, this writing right here takes place in 734, and according to history, in 732, which is two years later, Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, invades Samaria and Damascus and sacks the cities of, the capital cities of Israel and uh, Syria. So just as the prophet said, and so you can, it's one of those times where I'm not saying you need world history to understand the Bible, but you've got these pinpointed marker dates on the on you know the calendar of history that you can go to. That, that they don't serve necessarily to give credibility to the Bible. What they do is they fill in the gaps the Bible doesn't bother with. The Bible doesn't say, by the way, reader, you're in 734, so two years later you're going to look back and it's going to be in two years when Tiglath Pileser invades the northern kingdoms. You don't get that in your Bible because your Bible's not an encyclopedia. But an encyclopedia is an encyclopedia. And so you can go to the encyclopedia and you can say, well, this happened on that date as Isaiah said it would. So Isaiah said it would on this date. Just put the two and two together like that. All right. So verses 1 through 4 of chapter 8 is just a nice, clean little introduction of what God is going to do to the kingdoms of Syria and um, Israel, the northern kingdom. Through Assyria, they're going to march in. Assyria is and conquer the Syrian capital of Damascus and the Israel capital of Samaria and jettison them as a people. And that is all encompassed in the name of this second child of Isaiah. So that's just a nice, neat little tiny little prophecy. Verse 5, we reset. The Lord spoke again unto me, saying, verse 6, For as much as this people refuses the waters of Shaloah that go softly and rejoices in resin and Ramalia's son, 
Those are the kings of Israel and uh, Syria that we read about in the previous chapter. But I want to, obviously we're in the middle of a sentence, but before we finish the sentence in the next verse, I want to ask about your translations in verse 8. Mine, in the middle of the verse, says um, that people refuse the waters of Shaloah that go softly. Is that what your Bible says? You might have anything different? Are you talking about verse 6? I'm sorry, verse 6. Okay. Chapter 8, verse 6. My because bad. as people have refused the waters of Shaloah that flow gently yeah. and rejoice over. Okay, good. That is a That refers to a fountain in Jerusalem. There were a lot of springs and fountains and wells and things around there. And a lot of them took on cultural significance of things. Uh, the Pool of Siloam was a famous one you read about in the New Testament. Well, here are the waters of, of, um, of Shiloh. So it's a, a marker, a geographic marker that the people would be familiar with. Even the people in Israel, because they used to be united people. They used to know what Jerusalem had as a landmark. So it's this landmark on the map that was famous for its smooth, soft running waters. And God uses that as a metaphor for the peace that he brings, for the security that he offers. You're going to get this word later in the text of sanctuary and safety and shelter that God is offering. Like a mother hen taking chicks under his wings. That's the metaphor uh, Jesus uses to talk about Jerusalem in his lifetime. So you get these, this metaphor of peace and serenity that God offers, and they have just spurned it entirely. They are, they are deliberately going into a turbulent storm with hurricanes and fast winds and boats being capsized. But no, we have gentle waters over there, but we would have to do what God says over there. We would rather go our own way and sink every time. And that's what he's saying, the frustration of God here. You, you rejoice in resin and Ramalia's son. The people do. They are looking at the prospect of Israel and Syria offering an alliance with Judah, and they're salivating. Whereas the king of Ahaz is spurring that, spurning that, spurning that, because he prefers an alliance with Egypt. That's the beginning of chapter 7. He wants an alliance over there. The people say, no, let's ally ourselves with Israel and Syria. And God's like, does anybody want to be my ally? Does anybody want to team with me? Because I have a perfect track record. I'm batting a thousand. But nobody wants to ally themselves with God. The people want, want Syria and Israel. The king wants Egypt. Nobody wants God. So God has to step in and say, well, look what's going to happen. You're, you're rejecting peaceful waters for turbulent ones. You're rejecting peaceful war. Verse 7. <clears throat> now therefore behold, <clears throat> excuse me. Now therefore behold, the Lord brings up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. And he shall come up over all his channels and go over all the banks. So God does this all the time. It doesn't matter what writer it is. It's one of those things that this is the personality of God coming through in the writer. Because he uses metaphor all the time where he'll take a simple idea, a simple little, little metaphor, and make his point, And then just think to himself, that's a really good metaphor. Let's expand on that. And he'll spend a little bit more and expand on that idea, which is, earlier he just said, You've got this gentle waters here. That represents me, what I offer, God says. And you're choosing turbulent storms instead of the gentle waters. So as a consequence, I'm going to take this gentle water. I'm going to pull it back. You don't get the gentle water now. You had your chance. You didn't want it. Instead, I'm going to replace gentle water with a flood. I'm going to overflow your metaphorical rivers with the flood of Assyria. I'm going to bring in a flood of an invading army that's going to come and overflow, what does it say at the end of the verse? All your channels and go over all the banks. It's going to completely consume everything. If you remember earlier, um, I think it was in the, in the previous chapter, Isaiah said, or God said through Isaiah to the people, you want Assyria 
so bad, I'm going to give you Assyria. Good and hard. You want an alliance instead of an invasion. Well, you're going to get them, but not as an alliance. You're going to get an invasion. You want to make deals with them. I'm going to give you the worst of all deals. It's going to be you as their subjects. I'm going to bring them in to punish you. Verse 8. And he shall pass, he being the king of Assyria, this flood is going to come in and pass through Judah. And he shall overflow and go over. He shall reach even up to the neck. Imagine a visual of a flood going up to the, the human neck. <clears throat> And the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Is that how your Bible ends? The verse ends? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's the second reference to Emmanuel. The first one, chapter 7, 14, the Messiah to come is Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah isn't really prophesying Jesus here. He's just talking to him in a pre-incarnate form. He's saying, this is your land, Emmanuel. This is the land that I just got through prophesying you're going to come to save. That you're going to be born into. That you're going to reign over as a king. This is your land. Your holy land. Your royal land. Your, your kingdom will begin here. Your ministry will take place here. Your crucifixion will happen here. Your resurrection will happen here. Your ascension will happen here. This is the, the epicenter of everything for you on earth as a person. All of that is subtle and implied if that's what it is, then everything that's going to come, these flood waters are going to recede. This punishment is not going to last forever. This hard time is going to go away because the Messiah has to come. He has to place his feet on this land. He's not going to, the Messiah is not going to be born in Babylon. He's not going to minister in Persia. He's not going to be crucified in Assyria. He's going to be here in this land, the very land that Isaiah is saying, I'm coming in to destroy to overflow, to flood the land with punishing armies invading you. But this is, this is Emmanuel's land. So once the floodwaters recede, as with Noah, a new birth will begin. A new people will take over. Verse 9. <coughs> Associate yourselves. What does your Bible say? Be broken, you people, and be shattered. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know why it's translated in the King James, Associate yourselves. But it, it actually, it means cause an uproar, cause a, a, a tumult. Uh, imagine someone, like a bull in a china shop. Well, unless they're the most relaxed bull ever, the whole point of the metaphor for a bull in a china shop is what happens to the china. Somebody please, this one isn't a hard one. Broken. Yeah, it breaks all the stuff, right? That's broken, as her translation puts it. So cause an uproar. Go and start knocking tables over. Start flipping tables and start breaking things. Cause an uproar. This is not God giving them permission to do bad. This is God saying, go ahead, have it your own way. Try it yourself and see the disaster that you're going to walk into. Um, try to take the, the world into your own hands. Try to take your salvation into your own hands. Flip your tables and you will be broken in pieces. Give an ear, all you far countries. Gird yourselves, suit up your armor. And you will be broken to pieces. You think to yourself, I can out-strategize God. I can out-plan God. I can out-fight God. I can out-defend God. I can withstand His punishment. Over and over, no matter what you think, you're going to be broken. You're going to be shattered into a million little pieces. Do your wickedness. You'll be broken to pieces. Armor up. You'll be broken to pieces. He says it twice. Armor up. You'll be broken to pieces. Gird yourself. Gird yourself. And watch me just snap you in two. God says Literally, to be crushed. Mine says broken in pieces. Crushed. Ground into powder. Your pride, your ego, your assumption, presumption of victory. No, you're nothing versus God. Verse 10. 
Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand. And then Isaiah says something on behalf of himself and the remnant who is being faithful to God. God is with us. And you have to emphasize it that way. Otherwise, this whole text is very confusing. Because God spends the first half of verse 10 and 9 and 10 saying, Do these things and I'll destroy you. Do these things and I'll destroy you. Do these things and I'll destroy you. And then he ends with, For God is with us. Well, is he destroying me because he's with me? That doesn't make sense. It's two different people. You people who don't want to listen to God, who don't want the peaceful waters of God, who are going to suffer the flood of God's wrath, you go ahead and try to push against the tide of God's punishment. You'll be broken in pieces because God is not with you. God is with us. God is with his faithful ones, his few, his remnant that we've been hearing about and talking about in pieces here and there from the beginning of this whole book. So he's mocking them. Uh, in the King James, take counsel together, strategize. Go ahead, try to outthink God. You can't. Um, rally your troops, speak the word. Let's give you know a, a, um, a rousing speech to your armies. And send them out to charge against God and watch them go, and you're all just dead. You can't outfight God. You can't stand against God. You don't have a chance. Why? Because God has, has abandoned you. God, you don't have a, a prayer because you don't want God. You've abandoned God. I said it backwards. You've abandoned God. And so you can't win. Verse 11, for the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. So again, you see the two different groups here. God is with us and to us, me among them, Isaiah says, God has told me, don't walk in the ways of those people. Don't do as they've done. Don't walk. Isaiah has been told with God's strong hand, with the strength of God's hand. So God is showing him, look at what I'm capable of. Now pay attention. Because you don't want to be on the wrong side of my backhand. And I'm going to exhort you, don't walk in the way everyone else walks. Why, why do you have to tell Isaiah that? Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's more for everyone else's benefit reading Isaiah's words. But the text says, he said to Isaiah, I'm warning you, Isaiah, don't follow the people. So the only, the only answer I can give you is everybody can be pressured to bow to the majority's whim. Anybody can be tempted to, to bend and, and um, hedge, uh, you know, to trim the hard edges of a message when the majority don't want to hear it. You know, just the, and it, it's a problem with preachers back then. It's a problem with preachers today. You don't want to say something that makes somebody mad. And so you just kind of smooth the rough edges of the gospel. When the whole point of the gospel for a person who's not a, a Christian to hear it is to make them a little uncomfortable. Because they're already in their comfortable spot, which is sin and death you got to get them thinking, yeah, 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 and then make them start to question and make them start to wonder, make them start to ask. So you got to do the hard edge things. And so the temptation is to smooth it a little bit. You know, it'll go down easy for them. They'll pay you. Everyone's happy. Everyone wins. You can't always do that. So I wonder if that's maybe just God seeing the potential and reminding him at the outset, don't follow the majority here. You teach the truth. Verse 12, don't say... A confederacy, the King James says. To all of them to whom this people shall say, a confederacy. Don't fear their fear. You see him talking to the preacher, Isaiah? Don't fear as they fear. Don't be afraid as they're afraid. My Bible, beginning of the verse 12, don't say a confederacy. What's your Bible say? Do not call it conspiracy, all that this people calls conspiracy. All right. I don't like that translation either because the meaning of it in the context and the usage 
it refers to alliances between the nations. Don't go along with their badgering and their saying, but wouldn't it be a good idea just, you know, to have it in our back pocket that Egypt was there? Just to know they were there in case we got invaded, Egypt could come help. Don't do that. Once you start down that path, you're acknowledging, I don't know if God is fully capable of doing this. Uh, I think God's weak. I don't know if God is willing to do this. I think God is unfaithful. You start saying those things, you start hedging your bets, you start playing around with alliances with people, a confederacy. Your Bible says conspiracy, but what is a conspiracy? But it's when people get together and they whisper something behind someone else's back, and they plot something. And that's what these alliances are, behind the back of God, who has eyes back there, nevertheless. So don't, don't follow along with them saying to you, yeah, sure, we'll listen to God, tell God we'll listen to him, and then we'll secretly send a letter to the king of, of Egypt. Don't follow along with that, because they're going to say to you a, cons a, con a conspiracy. They're going to say to you a confederacy. They're going to say to you, let's make an alliance, because they're afraid. They're afraid, but you don't be afraid. You show leadership. They're going to be fearful. They're going to be uh, trembling, but you be stout. You be resolute. You say, trust God. That's the difference. And that's summarized in verse 13 of Isaiah 8. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. This is 1 Peter 3.15 in a nutshell. I mean, I, I would be certain, and I'll ask him when I get there, I would be certain that Peter had <coughs> Isaiah on his mind when he was writing that chapter of 1 Peter 3. The whole of 1 Peter is about you Christians are being persecuted, you're being uh, hurt by non-Christians in the world who are abusing you because you're living your faith, and the temptation is to go away from your faith, but instead you need to be strong and resolute and true to Christ. And they're going to make you want to be afraid to be faithful. But don't give in to that terror. Instead, sanctify the Lord God. And so it's exactly what Isaiah says. Somebody read 1 Peter 3.15. And you maybe could quote it. Somebody, 1 Peter 3.15. In fact, read 14 and 15. 1 Peter 3.14 and 15. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. All right, hang on. Let me pause you real quick. His says, don't be afraid of their threats. I'm pretty sure the King James says, don't be afraid of their terror or be troubled. But I could be wrong. I don't have my Bible open. Is, are you reading the King James? No, King James. Okay. I could be wrong. But it's the same idea. They're threatening you. They're trying to coerce you. That's what terrorism is. That's what terror in that context refers to. It's coercion. It's the, it's the threat of force. It's the threat of danger to force you to submit to their will and whim, whatever it is. In this context of 1 Peter, non-Christians telling Christians, stop being so faithful or we're going to hurt you. All right, please continue. Uh, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope uh, that is in you with meekness and fear. Very good. So that's what you just read in Isaiah. And I'm, I'm almost certain that was, if it wasn't, then it was just the same Holy Spirit inspired both, and it's just a coincidence. But I'm almost certain Peter, who would have known his old Bible anyway, was thinking as the Holy Spirit's inspiring him. Oh yeah, this is this is Isaiah eight. Yeah, I'm with you. I know what, I know what you're going to say. I got it, I got. It. It's probably just like that as he was writing First Peter three. Because what you just heard it. Now listen again to Isaiah eight twelve. The end of it. Don't fear their fear. Don't be afraid because fear is contagious and fear is pressuring. Instead, sanctify the Lord of hosts Himself and let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. 
Okay, all these people are terrified and fear is very contagious. You can sense it. You can taste it when you walk into a room if everybody's afraid. And it's very intimidating to be the one person who says, I'm not afraid of these things because everybody else is and they think you're either stupid or you're ignorant or you're in on it or something. And it's hard just to stand there and be the one guy on the island who says, but I'm not afraid of that. It's fine. What are you afraid of then? I only fear God. And I don't remember who said it first. It sounds like a C.S. Lewis quote, but it could be anybody. Somebody has the famous quote, if you fear God, you fear nothing else. And if you don't fear God, what? How's it in? You fear everything else, right? If all you fear is God, then nothing else matters because everything else God made. So if I'm in his hand, then I'm fine. If I'm protected in him, then nothing you can throw at me is going to bother me. But if I don't fear God, then the whole world is in his hands. It's, that's an armada of things to worry about. So that's verse 13 of Isaiah 8. Instead of fearing the little petty worldly things they fear, set God apart. The Lord of hosts set him apart. Let him be what you fear. Let him be your, King James's dread. End of verse 13, what does your Bible say? Yeah. It was his dread. All right. It doesn't, it doesn't mean, although, okay, for too long, preachers, and I guess, oh, let's just say a lot of everybody, not just, let's not just blame preachers, because we're awesome. If we're too long, <laughs> preachers have said, all right, now I know the Bible says you got to fear God, but that doesn't mean you're afraid of God. It just means you respect God. Well, okay, fine, sure. I, you, are, you are supposed to respect God. But you should fear God. And if you don't fear God, it makes it a lot easier to give in to that temptation. Like, it, I need more than just, yeah, I respect God, so I'm not going to commit that sin. I need more than just respect. I need to be reminded, if I do commit that sin and I don't repent, that's it for me. If I commit that sin and I don't repent, then I should be terrified of the fire that is God's vengeance. I should always fear God. Now, I don't, I don't have to be afraid of God if I'm faithful. But if you take away that qualifier, if you take away that big fat if, then, yeah, you, you should be afraid. You should be very afraid. Let God be the only thing you're afraid of. And then once that's an understood thing, ask yourself, why am I afraid of God? Because if I'm faithful to God, I don't need to be afraid of God. He's the only thing I should be afraid of that I need to be afraid of. But if I'm on his side, I'm not going to be afraid of him. Does that make sense? You get what I'm saying? If I'm being faithful to God, I don't need to fear God. If I'm not, then I should be. Now, the way Isaiah is using it is, you're fearing all of these things. God's wrath is coming. Fear that. And then let that motivate you to be faithful. Because the remnant aren't afraid of God. The faithful of God aren't afraid of him. Because they're on God's side. They're standing back here as the wave and wave of God's judgment is going to be flowing on everyone else. They're not afraid of that. They're on God's side. So it's, it's, it's only half the equation. You fear God until you don't need to anymore. You fear him until you repent and you turn to him. And that idea that you should fear him if you're not faithful should always be in the back of your mind. Now, if you do that, verse 14, then God will be for you a, King James says, sanctuary. He will be for you a a place of shelter. In fact, um, the same word in the Hebrew from which we get the word sanctuary is the same word, and you can hear it even in the English, that we get the word saint. A, a, a sanctified person 
is a person who has been, are you ready? Made a place in a sanctuary. You hear the same root word in it? So you have God saying, I will be your sanctuary. I will take you out of the danger storm and put you in the shelter. I will put you in the sacred place, the, the sanctified place. It's all the same root word. So God is saying to you, if you fear me, I will be for you the shelter from the storm, the sanctuary from the storm. But a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both houses of Israel. If you don't fear me, then what will I be to you? But an anchor that holds you down, an anchor that weighs you down, a rock of offense, a stumbling block to both houses of Israel, Judah and Israel. A gin and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. A gin, King James says, a net, a net, not, not the lady, a net, the, a, a net. A net that you throw and you catch things with. And a snare, a hook that you trap for animals. You know what I'm talking about. You trap, yeah. A gin and a snare. Same thing. Now we're singing Jeff's song. Um, okay. Again, Peter had to have read his Isaiah before he wrote his book. Because somebody please read 1 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8. Or Tommy, if you're still close by. No, it's still 400 pages away. You, you shut that. First one there wins the prize. 1 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8. The precious value then is for those, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builder rejected, this becomes the very cornerstone. All right. Now, that reference is from the Psalms, but the idea, the, the um, contrasting idea is the same thing. If Jesus is, the, is just one person, but depending on how you approach Jesus, you'll perceive him as a totally different thing. He will either be for you a source of salvation, he'll be an oasis in a desert, or he'll be the fiery punishment of your eternal damnation. It's the same one who says, enter into life, is also the same one who says, depart from you to death evermore. It's the same person. So if you want to turn to Christ, you'll find in him salvation. If you don't, you'll find in him a rock of offense, a stone of stumbling, a, a stone that the builders rejected that becomes the cheap cornerstone around which all of salvation is built. Same, same idea that is Played off here in Isaiah 14. Fear God and he'll be a sanctuary. Don't and he'll be a stumbling block, a rock of offense to both of you. He'll be a snare to everyone of Jerusalem. Verse 15. And many of them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Let's break those words down. Five outcomes to people who reject God's sanctuary. You will stumble, the King James says. The word means to wobble, to waver. You will not fall down immediately. You will find yourself suddenly on unsure footing. Then, number two, you will fall. Stumbling begets other stumbles until eventually you fall. And then you keep falling until you hit rock bottom. And when you hit the bottom, third thing, you'll be broken like Humpty Dumpty, who was fine until he hit the ground. Next, you'll be snared, left helpless, exposed, uh, a carcass on the road for the vultures to come snag and feast off of. And then finally, you'll be taken. They'll take your corpse they're on the side of the road, and they'll drag you off into the ditch where they can eat on you so you don't, they don't get hit by a Honda. That's the metaphor. You'll be roadkill, dragged away to be consumed. You stumble, you fall, you're broken, you're snared. There's nothing left but, as it says, to be devoured. Verse 16. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. Um, the next three verses, 16, 17, 18, it's, it is really debated among scholars and so forth uh, as to who is doing the speaking. Is Isaiah speaking specifically? Is God speaking in particular? Is it a combination of both going back and forth? 
I think God is speaking in verse 16. I think Isaiah is responding in verse 17. And I think God finishes in verse 18. That's what I think. So let's proceed from that and see if it makes sense. I think in verse 16, God is telling Isaiah that people aren't going to listen to everything that we just got through writing in the previous verses about turn to me, let me be your fear, etc. Or otherwise I'll destroy you. The people aren't going to listen to that, which we've already got a hint of that back in chapter 6 when God sent Isaiah out. He told him, Go out and preach and tell them, you people aren't going to listen, but here's the message. So that, that tracks. So set it aside. Bind the testimony for those stubborn people to read later. It's a common theme among the prophets. They prophesy. They say all these things are going to happen. The people say, ah, but we're going to keep sitting anyway. Off with your head. And then later, after they are punished, they think, well, if only someone had warned us. And then someone says, Bible! And they read it and they discover, ah, oh, we should have listened to that prophet. Meanwhile, here's another prophet telling them, and if you don't repent, an even worse problem is coming. And they all say, ah, but we're going to keep sinning. Surely it won't happen twice. Off with his head. And the cycle just keeps going. And all of God's prophets just kept dying and kept dying. God just kept sending them with the same message. Repent or be destroyed. And every one of them was killed in horrific ways. You can read some of them in Hebrews 11. The world was not deserving of these wonderful men who were just lambs to the slaughter. Every time they would preach the gospel and they would be murdered. But the same people who a generation later would look back and say, oh, we should not have killed that guy. Well, let's kill that guy, though. Surely it won't happen again. And over and over and over it happened. So God is saying to Isaiah, seal up this testimony for them to read it later. Bind it, you know, wrap it up, the scroll, tie it down, and set it aside. Because after this prophecy comes true, they're going to be scratching their heads looking for answers. And you will have already written the answers. As so they will look back on it and they'll be like, well, oh, I reckon he was a prophet. We should have listened to what he said. Now Isaiah responds in verse 17. And I will wait upon the Lord, something else he will say very poetically in chapter 40, that hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. I, and I think he's not just speaking of himself, but of the whole remnant, the faithful ones of God will be patient with God while he does all of this disciplinary action to the rest of them. We will wait upon the Lord. The Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. That's a summary for all the punishment he's been talking about. And I will look for him. I will wait for God and I will look for him and I will expect to find him. In other words, verse 18, God closes us out. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are, are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwells in Mount Zion. <laughs> this is God, I think, speaking in response to what Isaiah says in chapter 17. Now you could argue it's not like that, it's this or that. Fine. Um, but I think God is the author here. And he starts by saying, Behold, pay attention to what I'm going to say. These are the words of the second person of God. These are the words of Emmanuel. These are the words of the Messiah. I and the, uh, the children whom the Father has given me, Emmanuel says, are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. What are the children signifying? If the children of Israel are for signs and wonders, if in this context the punishment of the children of Israel going into and coming out of captivity is for signs and wonders, then what is it signifying? What is going to happen to make people be in awe, wonder, and come to the conclusion that God was there? Notice that God is described as dwelling in Mount Zion. In a very short time, this mountain is going to be invaded. Yet it is still the mountaintop of God. In other words... The captivity won't be permanent. Who is going into captivity? A whole bunch of unfaithful people. Who is also going into captivity? A whole bunch of faithful people. 
Just like how Paul, it is said, as he was being marched to the chopping block, was singing hymns on his way to be executed, so will the faithful people of God be singing praises to Jehovah, the remnant will be, into Babylon, who is not even on the radar right now. They're all worried about Assyria. But when the uh, captivity finally comes, they're going to be going into Babylon, singing God's praises, knowing by the words of the prophet, we're going to come out. It's going to be all right. We're going to get to leave here. And that's going to be the sign, the testimony that these are my people. These are the people who are going into captivity with faithfulness, who will hold on to their faithfulness there, who will come out of captivity with that same faithfulness, and they will repopulate the land, and it will be to them that the Messiah comes. And as he says, these will be my people. Now, there's a whole lot of things that will happen in between, but that's the gist of it. Verse 19. And when they shall say to you, God speaking to the prophet, when they shall say to you, seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep, huh, we'll get to that, and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God, the living to the dead? Well, let's start at the beginning of the verse. This is, a, this is an amazing verse of Isaiah. Look at verse 19. To Isaiah the prophet, God says, they will say to you, Isaiah, come and listen to these wise people that we've talked to. This guy, they, he seems to have all the answers. He's got his own channel on the Trinity Broadcasting Network. He's got the fanciest suits. You should see the shine on his smile. He's got a jet. So you need to listen to this guy. He claims that he can commune with familiar spirits. He claims he can speak to the spirits of the dead. Well, what can they do? They're dead. How is that a helpful thing? I don't know, but people were really crazy about the idea that a dead spirit, you could conjure a dead spirit and it would tell you things. What's it going to tell you? What's the temperature like down there? What can they possibly tell you? They're dead. They don't even live here. They don't even know what the temperature is up here because they're dead. But they would say, we can commune with, with dead spirits. They will say, come seek unto these, the King James calls them, wizards that peep. What does your Bible say? Please tell mediums, me it's even more ridiculous. Hmm? Mediums and... Necromancers. Necromancers, yeah. People, yeah, necromancers, people again who, who uh, conjure all the power. Hmm? They say that chirp and mutter. Yeah, chirp and yeah. So they, 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 uh, they, they speak in, in babbling languages as they try to conjure up in, insight and wisdom from dead spirits. Necro, dead, dead spirits. My Bible calls them wizards, and I just imagine they have big hats and long beards, but they can't actually cast spells. But they can, they can sure put on a spectacle. They can sure put on a show. And they have convinced people that they have this, their pagan inside, their pagan knowledge. And they just they seem real convincing. Isaiah, you know, you're out here just standing on the street corner with a sign that says the end is nigh. But this guy can talk to my dead grandmother. And apparently she knows what's going to happen in the future. She didn't know it when she was alive, but she must have got some insight. So come listen. No. And so God says all that. And then look at the maybe... The most heartbreaking thing that Jehovah says in the entire Old Testament. He says, listen, they're gonna, people are going to say to you, come listen to these guys who can talk to these spirits. Come listen to these guys that can talk to these spirits. Come listen to these people who can communicate with the dead. Talk to the dead. Listen to the dead. And then God says, shouldn't a people seek after their God? Is that what your Bible says? Yeah. I mean, that Inquire, is... actually. Huh? Inquire of their God. Right. In other words... They're, they're talking to a corpse, hoping a spirit, a dead spirit, will talk to them. And God is thinking, I am a living spirit. I am alive. 
and I am bigger than all of them. I breathed life into them originally. They're dead because of sin against me. And it's my people, Judah, that I called, that I claimed, that I protected at the beginning of their existence. It's my people that are looking to these weirdos and their weird cults and their weird philosophies listening to dead spirits that aren't even actually talking to them. It'd be one thing. It'd be a small thing, but it'd at least be one thing if they really were getting dead spirits to get up and speak to them. But they're not even doing that. But they just think they could do that, and that's got them all hot and bothered. And God says, I am right here, a real-life living spirit. And you are actually my people. Shouldn't the people seek their God instead of the dead? They should talk to the living God. Do you see? Do you hear the exasperation in his voice? Do you hear the heartbreak in his voice? Verse 20. We're almost done. To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Here's the people. There they are, Isaiah. They're going to try to get you to follow along with them. There are people who just want to listen to, to nonsense. They want to listen to what sounds good to them, to what is, is alluring, to what sounds interesting and fancy. But they won't listen to you because your message is true. And truth is just boring sometimes. And truth is sometimes harsh and not fun. And as that's summarized as there is no light in them, which really, I'm just going to put a peg in that because that'll be explained in chapter 9. So remember, God says there's no light in them. I'll tell you what Calvin says. Calvin says there's no light in them. John Calvin, the quack. There's no light in them because God never chose them to be saved. Well, that's just not how it works, John. But that's what he said. Isaiah will say something different, and we'll take his word for it in the next chapter. Let's finish the chapter. Verse 21. And they shall pass through it, hardly bestead and hungry. And it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. Um, the King James capitalizes God there. Does your Bible capitalize the G in God? Yeah. It ought not. It should be lowercase g. Because here's the point. These people who are going to be listening to those familiar spirits and those diviners, those necromancers and those pagans, they're going to listen to them all the way into captivity. And on their way into captivity, when they're wearing a sack and their heads are shaved and their backs are already bloodied from the whips as they're marching on foot all the way to Chaldea, they're going to curse those stupid wise men who led them astray, they're going to curse their stupid king who didn't listen to Isaiah. They're going to curse their stupid gods that they listened to instead of Jehovah. They will look up and curse the sky, and curse the sky gods. Verse 22, and they shall look to the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness and anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. They will look up. Maybe expecting God to do something, but no, you had your chance, and you didn't take it. They will look down, maybe expecting God to come up to save them, but no, he's not, he's not coming from there to save you. You had your chance, and you chose not to listen. Instead, what do you have? Trouble and darkness, the dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven into darkness. But, as we end the chapter, as the saying goes, it is always darkest before what? Before dawn, or before the light, exactly. Thus, chapter 9, the light will come. It will come not in the way they expect. Keep in mind, this is a people that's going to be marched into political conquest. They have been beaten by an army. They have been defeated by a king. They are going to be ruled over in a political way. 
They are going to expect God's Savior to undo all of that. They are going to expect Rambo. They're going to expect a, a, a righteous hero, a guy jumping out of trees with a knife, shiving people until the enemies run away, something like from Vietnam or something. They expect, you know, guerrilla warfare and brute force and, and victory for this small scrappy army against a mighty empire. They're going to expect a wartime conquering hero to be their savior. They're going to get a baby. And they're not going to be happy about it. But that's chapter 9. All right? That's the end. The bell's going to ring in like, I don't know. 10 seconds. I, I nailed it last week, but I won't nail it this week because nobody's that perfect. But um, any comments or questions from anybody? All right. Chapter 8, like I said, very, very sad. You're all very bad, Isaiah says. But chapter 9, you're all very bad. You're all going into the darkness. But there's light at the end of that. A baby will be born who will save you. Now I'm done. All right. Thanks, you guys, very much.